Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, this question is focused on an issue in Vancouver, but my guess is it's become such a story. There are many people outside of the Vancouver boundaries that have an opinion on this. So the hot question of the day, the park board, that's the Vancouver Park Board, is meeting for the first time this year tonight. You might be surprised to learn Oppenheimer Park is not on the agenda. So we are asking you, how would you say the park board has dealt with this controversial issue? You can choose between good, it's a sensitive issue, it needs a stronger response, or C, fail, time to get rid of the board. Head on over to Twitter. You can vote at CKNW. I just retweeted it as well. You can vote on my Twitter feed at Jill Reports. That's all one word. If you would like to get into this even more, give the Buzz line a call, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 604-331-2899. You can leave your vote there and you can also explain why you are voting the way you are voting. And we will share some of the responses. Well, all of the responses, maybe, and the vote, absolutely, a bit later on in the program. So we're asking you about the Park Board. The Park Board is meeting for the first time tonight. It's the first time this year. Oppenheimer Park, not on the agenda. So unless someone adds it to the agenda, or it is brought in as an addendum or an addition, doesn't look like that's going to be at least not part of the public part of the meeting tonight. Maybe they talk about it in camera. If so, not a lot of good that does to people who rightfully so would like some answers on what is happening with Oppenheimer Park, what is going to be happening in the next days, weeks, months, years, I dare say. How would you say the park board has dealt with the controversial issue? You can vote A, good, it's a sensitive issue. B, it needs a stronger response. Or C, fail, exclamation point. It is time to get rid of the board. So vote uh, at Twitter, at CKNW, or at Jill Reports, and we will share some of those uh, responses throughout the program. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, protesters shut down a BC ferry terminal for a short time this morning in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en people and protesting plans to build that natural gas pipeline. Well, Colin Sutherland-Wilson is joining us again. He is a spokesperson for the group, also a member of the Gitsan Nation. Colin, thank you so much for being with us. No problem. Uh, I know when you were talking on the morning show, things were just uh, winding down at that point. So have things uh, dispersed as far as the protests today? Yeah, it's uh, completely ended at this point, but uh, hopefully our message carries forward. Uh, We were getting word of another pipeline protest uh, in Vancouver at Clark and Hastings. Is that part of your group or is that something completely different as far as you know? Uh, Well, definitely there's a lot of different people working on a lot of different things. And, uh, and I think there's definitely a lot of cry about, oh, cry about what's happening on what's Odin territory. But I can't say that we're affiliated with that group. Okay, fair enough. Uh, talk a little bit about why the decision was made then to focus on the ferry terminal this morning. Well, I guess uh, it's definitely, uh, you know, a point 
or it could be said that, uh, you know, the LNG that powers the ferries, you know, is connected to the coastal gasling project, which never received the consent by the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs to go on their territory. So more so it was not directly pointed at the ferry terminal, but it was to bring attention to the fact that British Columbia is currently criminalizing the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs for asking for consent for things to happen on their territory. Uh, but if that's the reasoning on, so if it wasn't focused against ferries, but part of the reason was because ferries are going to be using natural gas, what's to stop your group then from picking high-rises, from picking condo developments where the individual condo owners have natural gas in their homes and protesting them? Well, I mean, that's a bit of a stretch, but ultimately it was just about making a, a statement to say that you know, all over the province, like regardless of if you're in Victoria or uh, Vancouver or Prince George or where have you, you know, there's a lot of people who have been following the situation up north who find it completely uh, reprehensible that British Columbia has yet to engage in good faith negotiations with the hereditary chiefs and that, you know, this is just kind of one thing. And But ultimately, the goal is not to inconvenience or... Uh, British Columbians. It's about getting the word out there, getting the knowledge about the situation out there and just trying to raise awareness. Right. But there were a whole lot of people who were headed to the ferries and in that ferry line who were inconvenienced. So if the goal is not to inconvenience them, then why are you protesting at a ferry terminal? Well, I mean, you know, it raises awareness. It raises the statement and the inconvenience that they faced was you know, in my opinion, it pales towards the inconvenience of the the reservation systems, the imposed Indian Act, the ban councils, the oppressive legislation that made the hereditary chiefs an illegal entity on their own land for over 100 years, and the inconvenience right now of the RCMP exclusion zone, which is inhibiting Wet'suwet'en people from accessing their own homeland. And I get that, but to say, I mean, the point of protesting someplace like a ferry terminal, it is to inconvenience. Like, at least yeah. call it what it is. There's there's a reason why you pick a, a ferry terminal. There's a reason why groups pick a bridge. It's to inconvenience people. And it, you know, makes a splash. It raises awareness. What do you say to, to people who are angry about this, who might support what you're saying and agree with what you're saying, but say it's the wrong way to go about doing it? I mean, it's tough, you know, because, you know, my people, the Gixan, we've been trying to raise awareness around these issues for over 100 years. And, you know, Canada is still at the point where these discussions are just starting. So, you know, it's it's not like we have too many options here to actually make some noise. And I definitely apologize if we did inconvenience you because, like, in the end, that is not our primary intention. What we're trying to bring the discussion to is what is happening on Unisotan land where, you know, any day now the RCMP can enforce that injunction and we might see a repeat of what happened last year, January 7th, where RCMP, I guess, with assault rifles and body armor, essentially dismantled, uh, you know, the the blockade that was set up by uh, unarmed Wet'suwet'en people. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to avoid violence and I mean, at this point, like, what else can we do? Uh, so is the protest, is your focus then, is it the lack of consultation and the way that the project has moved ahead, or is it the project itself? 
It, it's more so to do with uh, honoring what's owed in law. Because the hereditary chiefs made it pretty clear in a press release that they made not too long ago that outlined uh, that they have not given their consent to coastal gassing to work on their territory, that they've asked the province to withdraw the RCMP. And they've also asked for, uh, you know, Premier Horgan and, uh, you know, the leaders of British Columbia and Canada to meet them at the table to talk it through. But so far, the Premier has, you know, even during his tour of northern BC, refused outright to talk with the hereditary chiefs. And that is despite, you know, their shared history in the Supreme Court of Canada, the 1997 Delgamuth ruling, uh, the trilateral treaty negotiations that have taken place since 94. Like, by all rights, the hereditary chiefs are the decision makers, but, you know, we feel it's unjust for uh, Horgan to ignore them and also to paint them as dissidents in the media. So does nothing ever change the fact then that they are the decision makers? Because there's been a lot of attention paid to that as well, that even though the bulk of the hereditary chiefs oppose the project, it does have the support of Indigenous groups and First Nations along the project line. It does have the support of the elected leaders. And the argument that one no from a hereditary chief trumps all of that means it shows a complete lack of democracy. Well, it's, I mean, that's kind of a point that comes up a lot, but it's very problematic because uh, it's not a handful of hereditary chiefs. It's all five clans of the Witsoden hereditary chiefs as represented by the five highest ranking chiefs of that group. And all those agreements that were made were made with the band councils, which only have jurisdiction over the tiny plots of land that they call reserves. And essentially, they're all accountable to the federal government for funding regardless. So all these pipelines, none of them actually cross reserve land. And all the land that the pipeline does cross, the band councils would have never had a say on it if the hereditary chiefs hadn't received recognition for their rights and title in the 97 Delgamuk ruling. So where do you go from here, then, as far as future protests or drawing attention to uh, this issue? Well, we just need to get the knowledge out there because the uh, the hereditary chiefs, they are a government that has existed uh, for millennia. Like, uh, they presented thousands of years of oral history in order to prove, uh, you know, that they did have rights and title, that they did have governance. Yet, in the 91 ruling, uh, British Columbia and uh, well, Alan McEachern of the Supreme Court of British Columbia essentially said, you know, we were uncivilized, uh, we didn't have books or wheels, like we were essentially aimless savages, and we had to fight to uh, make the case that our rights and title were never extinguished, and that was all the hereditary chiefs who made that victory happen in 97. And uh, so for right now, you know, this is the continuation of something that's been going on for over 100 years. Since uh, 1912, the McKenna McBride Commission you know, the Witsoden hereditary chiefs and Gixan hereditary chiefs and other hereditary chiefs representing traditional governments that, you know, not only speak to uh, our way of governance, but also our language, our culture, our history. It's a whole way of life. You know, even going back to 1912, they've been rejecting the reserve system. They've been rejecting the uh, imposed model of governance that makes us dependable on Canada. And so this is the continuation of that struggle. And it's not just exclusive to its own territory, but right now that's where it's most pertinent. So, I mean, 
we're just going to keep trying to get the word out because it's an important topic that affects all of us. All right. Well, Colin, we will leave it there, uh, but I'm sure we will chat with you about this and talk to you about this uh, in the in the coming days. Thank you so much for being available today. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Colin Sutherland-Wilson, a spokesperson with Solidarity with Wet'suwet'en, also a member of the Gixan Nation. We have been talking about the Coastal GasLink project building a 670-kilometer pipeline from the northeast to Kitimat on the coast. The company has agreements with 20 elected First Nation councils along the path, but as you know, hereditary clan chiefs, who are leaders under the more traditional form of governance, say the $6.6 billion project does not have a authority without their consent. Well, this past weekend, a Green MLA and a Green MP uh, paid a visit to the area. They were invited to the area, one of those being Paul Manley, who is an MP from Nanaimo Ladysmith. And he joins us now to talk a bit more about that. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for uh, including me in your conversation. Uh, So what was the meeting like? What was accomplished or what did you do uh, when you met with the hereditary chiefs? Well, I'm I'm just uh, you know here to listen and learn and uh, get more background on uh, what's happened up here, and I'm also here to meet with the RCMP to to discuss with them what what the actions uh, that they're taking uh, might be, and uh, you know we have concerns about what happened last year, and we don't want to see a repeat of that. Uh, the Green Party, you know, one of our core principles is nonviolence, and and we want to see. Uh, dialogue in this in this situation and so uh, I think that you know last year what happened was a, a black eye to Canada um, and so we don't we don't want to see an action like that again and so I think it's important to, to have those discussions and it's important to hear what the hereditary chiefs have to say they've they've asked for um, meetings with the uh, provincial and federal governments because that's you know who they negotiate with not they don't negotiate with the company um, and they, you know, the premier hasn't been out to meet with the hereditary chiefs, and neither has the prime minister. So I'm I'm here to listen and learn. In terms of the what I've learned about about you know the situation with band councils, they're put in a tough position. They are responsible for the reserves. They're um, the elected system that's imposed by the colonial uh, Indian Act, and uh, the the band council members who who signed those agreements lost elections afterwards. So none of them are, are elected uh, members any longer. And the community meetings that were held to the community said that they were, they were not in support of this project. So um, I know that elected band, band uh, councils and chiefs are, in, are put in a tough position because their, their communities are impoverished and have been impoverished for, uh, you know, over a hundred years. And, uh, they're they're dealing with a, a colonial system, and they should be given other options rather than uh, you know damaging environmentally destructive extraction projects and and the money that comes from that or nothing. So, um, Did you get the impression because a lot has been and you just mentioned that the premier, the prime minister have not met with the hereditary chiefs. Did you get the impression that should that meeting occur, anything would change? Uh, in terms of their support for the pipeline, I'm not sure. I th- uh, you know, think the like the pipeline I've just been learning has gone through uh, a, a pristine area. The where the, where they're building uh, the pipeline has gone through a, a pristine area and trail that is used for hunting and trapping that has never been logged and has been an area that uh, that um, 
has a sacred burial ground on it that, that date back uh, a long, long time. And um, so they're they're not happy about this route going through the community, um, obviously. And uh, so, you know, in terms of the existing pipeline route, I don't think that, that uh, a meeting with the Prime Minister or Premier would change their feelings about where that route is now. I don't know why a different route wasn't wasn't chosen, but uh, these are decisions that are made that, that are now being uh, pushed through against the will of the hereditary chiefs. Uh, you mentioned too the uh, that they should be given the people who are for, uh, perhaps in favor of this should be given a, another choice uh, rather than this being the only way uh, to pull people out of poverty. But that certainly has been one of the arguments from those who are in favor, saying this is something that will bring people out of poverty and will have a positive impact. Well, I think if there, if there wasn't six billion dollars worth of tax incentives to the five foreign multinationals that are. Um, doing this LNG Canada project and if, if the, the government of Canada wasn't pouring money into this as well as the provincial government we didn't have all these subsidies and you know Site C is another subsidy for this this project that we would be looking at other alternatives to fracking in the northeast and exporting uh, LNG and, and uh, raw products from this country I think that the government makes these decisions on on uh, what's in, you know important and they talk about the national interest, but I don't think that uh, these destructive environmental projects are in the national interest. Fracking is is uh, um, extremely dangerous for for the climate. You know, when methane is released into the atmosphere in the first 15 years, it's 80 times more potent than CO2, and it's it's uh, fracking destroys uh, aquifers and water. It destroys the air shed. It's it's um, it uh, causes earthquakes. It's extremely uh, detrimental to the environment. And to to have, you know, billions of dollars in subsidies for foreign multinationals to exploit this resource, uh, I think is is highly problematic. We should be putting, you know, if even if there was a level playing field and there weren't subsidies for the fossil fuel industry, would this project go forward? You know, and if we were putting money into that that kind of tax subsidy into renewable resources, we might have other projects up here that uh, First Nations could be uh, benefiting from. So it's, it's all about choices, and it's the choices that the, that the provincial and federal governments are making. And I'd say that these are pretty poor choices. All right, uh, Paul Manley, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thanks for taking some time with us today. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Take right. care. Paul Manley is the Green Party MP from Nanaimo, Ladysmith, and joining us from his meeting with hereditary chiefs in Wet'suwet'en territory. And we are going to talk about a court case, and it involves a dog by the name of Punky. And you might have heard about this case before. Joining me in studio is animal law lawyer Rebecca Bretter. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I saw you tweet this out, and I've been following along. We've talked about Punky in the past, but bring us up today for people who haven't followed along with this case. What was at the core of this case? Okay, so l- let me uh, tell you a little bit about the facts as they were 
uh, as the judge found them. This is a dog who unfortunately injured a woman at LaConnor Park. The judge found that this dog had a history of aggressive behavior to the point that veterinarians couldn't even treat, unfortunately, the dog. Um, the, the, the dog trainer had issues with training the dog and all that. Um, and ultimately, the judge, the very first judge, found that the dog, Punky, has to be put down. And the, the dog owner, Miss Antics, appealed it twice to the Supreme Court and then to the Court of Appeal and then ultimately to Supreme Court of Canada. And then uh, she lost at all levels. The Supreme Court of Canada decided not to hear it. But at the core of this case, and this is what I want dog owners to understand, because it often gets missed in how this case has been reported. Um, let me just say, my heart goes out to Punky. My heart goes out to Miss Antics, who has to deal with the situation. But at the core of this case is that once it got to the highest level in BC, this case was no longer about Punky. Mm -hmm. This case had everything to do with whether conditional orders are allowed for dogs. And basically what that means is that in the past for 15 years, and I've defended dogs for 15 years this way, is just because a dog has done something bad, and I think as dog owners, you know, sometimes we have dogs that do something a bit, you know, not mm -hmm. so nice. Um, they were able to be released on conditions, you know, like muzzle, uh, a better training program, diet, like you name it. Right. But now, as a result of this decision, dogs that have caused injury will not be able to be released on conditions and possibly not at all. And let me just be clear. It's, it doesn't mean I don't want dog owners out to be freaking out and, oh, my God, my dog just bit another dog at the dog park or just bit another human being. Is my dog going to be automatically be, uh, put down? No. Let me just put everyone at ease. Okay. It doesn't necessarily mean that. But what I could assure everyone is that it's going to be a heck of a lot harder to defend dogs at this, at this point in time because we're starting essentially from scratch in British Columbia. I've already had two successes with the city of Vancouver. So I, again, I want to put some minds at ease, but it is, it is much more of a fight. Um, in the 15 years that I've defended dogs on death row, I literally have never lost a case. And I say that not because, you know, I think I'm this like fantastic lawyer, but I say that because of the important implications that this case has had on the legal landscape for defending dogs in British Columbia. And it's a case that I say very openly, it should never have gone to the BC Court of Appeal. Never. Because of the risk that it put all dogs right now in, in British Columbia. So does this then override, because depending on where you live in Metro Vancouver or the Valley, it, it, jurisdictions have their own rules as far as if your dog is deemed dangerous or aggressive, you have to have a sign or you have to have your dog muzzled when you go out in public. Does this override all of that? Or how does this work? No. Okay. That's a very good question. I know. And it's like, it's such a huge topic. No. So very often the way things start is that municipalities across British Columbia, they have their own bylaws dealing with dogs. Right. So some, and actually most, if not all of them have bylaws dealing with aggressive dogs. So if an animal control officer comes to someone's house and they're like, hey, we know that your dog bit someone or caused injury to someone, we deem your dog aggressive now. That is totally different than the case that we're talking about now. The reason why is because is if it's at the city level, people either get a ticket or uh, it, it gets dealt with differently. What I'm talking about is when the city actually seizes the dog and mm. then pursues what's called a destruction application and wants a court to decide whether the dog should be put down. Those are the type of cases that I'm talking about. So how common is it that a city will seize a dog? 
Well, uh, how common? It's it's more, let me put it this way, it's more common than I would like it to be. Right. I think, uh, understandably, animal control in cities want to make sure that the public is safe. But at the same time, as, as a lawyer who has defended dogs for 15 years, I could very openly say that the system is against dogs right now because it just it, the cards are stacked against dogs and, and dog owners. The, the way investigations are done, the way uh, the way the, the legal system is set up is that there aren't proper procedures or actually any procedures really um, for, for defending dogs. It doesn't mean it can't be done and, and for sure it can be, but it's, it is hard. And I know animal control in cities, they do what they can. It's a function of uh, a, a dysfunctional legal landscape that we have now dealing with dogs. So in what scenario though, because you're right, dog owners are going to hear this and go, oh my God, I can't even take my dog now to this park or out. I'm afraid. What if my dog sees something or, or, or does something? So say a dog bites another dog or even worse, bites a human. Is it then it would have to be the person would have to report it to the city or report it to whatever jurisdiction you're in? And it has to go that route to, for this to apply. Well, let, let me let me put it this way: um, I would never advise my clients uh, after I've had a chance to get to know them, and for me to make sure that you know they're responsible people, and and that this is what I would want to suggest. But generally, and I have never advised a client to report something to animal control. Hmm. So the, it doesn't mean that it will not be reported. The other person can, but dog owners themselves do not have an obligation or any kind of legal duty to report an incident to animal control. And, uh, and so what we do is instead of that, because it could blow up into something that should not be, you know, it shouldn't get to a, a really bad point. Right. What we do is we make sure, and what my advice to, to dog owners is, is always, is, okay, I know you think your dog is not bad, and this is not going to happen again, but please just go, go see, get a second opinion, go to a dog trainer and go to an animal behaviorist. And I have names that I often recommend. Mm-hmm. And so that way, you never know. Like sometimes it's just an underlying medical condition. The dog was grumpy because he had like, like a urinary tract infection right. or, or there is an underlying behavioral issue that gets properly diagnosed. So do you think then, can all dogs be rehabilitated if they do show aggression? Or are there some dogs that maybe should be euthanized? Oh, gosh, that, you know, that is my heart and the animal protection advocate in me wants to say that all dogs can be rehabilitated. Um, But I know the reality is, is the vast majority of them can be. But there may be some occasions where there cannot. But let me also just clarify that there's a very big difference between rehabilitation and managing a dog. And that often right. gets lost in these types of, uh, of situations. Very often, a dog can actually, in most cases, a dog cannot be, quote unquote, rehabilitated, but they can be managed. Mm. So it's kind of like, you know, someone like bipolar disorder, right? They have a, a medical condition, but it could be managed. And same with dogs. There are dogs that have reactivity issues, that have uh, fear aggression issues. So th- that's something because of their circumstances that can never come out of them, but they could certainly be managed. And that's what we always look at in these cases in the, in the bigger picture. So what happened to Punky? Well, he is, uh, he's still at the Vancouver Pound, my understanding is, and his euthanasia is unfortunately scheduled for, I think it's Wednesday. 
Um, so it's it's absolutely it's absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, this whole case is 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 heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for for Punky, and it's heartbreaking for for all dogs in British Columbia. What's your advice then for dog owners? Again, anybody that has an aggressive dog, hopefully, is a responsible owner and does take those measures. Whether it's muzzling, keeping the dog away from dog parks. I used to have a dog that couldn't be in dog parks because he was unpredictable. What is your advice then to anybody that has a dog that they are managing? My best advice is even if you think that you are properly managing your dog right now, go see a reputable animal behaviorist who will work together with a veterinarian and a dog trainer to make sure that what you're doing is right. That's the absolute best advice I can give. Right, because you call this a devastating loss for animal law. So are we stuck with this, do you think, now? or Well, we're stuck until the law actually changes. Right. And so uh, so right now, uh, and I do have a case that's coming up in early February, we may be able to, to settle it, which would be good. But we'll see. Like right now, we're stuck with this decision. Uh, and there are ways that we're trying to creatively um, get use this decision because you can't really get around this decision, but be able to release dogs despite this decision in the creative ways that we're working on right now. All right. We're, we're out of time. I just have one more question, though, because there will be people who are afraid of dogs, maybe who have had bad experiences that say, well, wait a minute. If a dog has caused harm, a, a dog has done a horrible thing, I don't want that dog to be out in public with me. What do you say to people that, that say maybe this is the right decision? Well, I could tell those people right in the eye. I've defended dogs for 15 years, dogs that have unfortunately killed another dog or seriously injured other people. None of the dogs that I have defended are inherently aggressive that they're out there to like just kill everything they see. As long as the dog owner is trained just as well, (laughs) not even better than the dog, then there is nothing to worry about. I have never had a case where once a dog was released, that that dog or the dog owner for that matter, reoffended. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina, and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music, and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie, and Wrightsville, and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. And there was like this, this, this terrible thing that happened. Never. All right. That's a whole other discussion, the dog yes. owners. All right. We will leave it there. Rebecca Bretter, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much. All right. That is Rebecca Bretter, animal law lawyer. It is Monday. The park board will be meeting in Vancouver tonight, the first meeting of this year. And you might think that the situation ongoing in Oppenheimer Park would be on the agenda. Well, you would be incorrect. It is not officially on the agenda, although I'm sure a lot of people do have questions about what the board is 
is going to do about the camp that is continuing in that park. Theodore Lamb, Theodora Lamb, sorry, the uh, executive director of the Strathcona Business Improvement Association, joined us a couple of weeks ago after she had written a letter asking for at least some clarification, if not some action on this. And she's joining us again. Uh, we wanted to check in and see if anything has changed. Theodora, thanks so much for being with us again. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me as well. Uh, did you get any response to the letter? Um, I had a call last week with um, the chair of the Parks Board uh, acknowledging that uh, the letter had been sent. Of course, we um, were fortunate enough to print the letter uh, in the Vancouver Sun as an opinion editorial last week uh, to share it with the public. It's up on our website. But beyond that acknowledgement and uh, what was just a good conversation and um, some shared understanding, no, uh, we don't know what happens next, what the timeline looks like. And refresh for us, I know people saw it in the paper and, and, and likely a lot of people read it, but what specifically does the letter ask for? Yeah, um, well, the letter is on behalf of about 800 businesses operating in Strathcona, uh, particularly those businesses in and around Oppenheimer Park. And in this letter, we uh, cited a report we released last summer um, that our, our, our members um, helped us build uh, with their opinions and with their perceptions letting us know that 82% of those members who participated in this survey wanted Oppenheimer Park to be a park again, to be able to use it for a safe uh, recreation and, uh, you know, social purposes. Um, we shared that report uh, far and wide last summer. And uh, now, uh, you know, uh, we've seen very, very little uh, action since then. So we wanted to go back to uh, counselors, uh, to the parks board, uh, to the city manager's office and say, hey, what's happening in fact, our members, our business members, feel uh, less safe than ever, and uh, we wanted them to know that. And, and so do, were you satisfied at all then with the response of getting the phone call? Satisfied. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it, it doesn't, at the end of the day, what matters is how the businesses and the folks who are operating in and around the, the park feel, um, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, you know, a lot of these businesses understand the context in which they're operating. Uh, they're compassionate and empathetic uh, to the circumstances of so many folks who live uh, and are part of the community um, in and around the park. Uh, and those businesses, many of them who've been there for decades and decades, they've earned the right to hear from their elected officials uh, a plan on what happens next. And I acknowledge that that plan, maybe, yes, it starts with the um, announcement of a third-party assessor and, and some sort of uh, uh, multi-step plan over the next few weeks and months. And, and then I think what follows is regular and consistent communication from the city and from Parks Board. What's happening next? Maybe select one person to do weekly updates. Work with the local BIA to make sure that the businesses around the park um, are who want those updates, who want to know what's going on, um, are, are plugged in and looped in as well. And the other thing I want to say is, okay, this is great. This, this, is, um, this is not just a park issue, though. The fact that we're talking and focusing in and around all this camping activity uh, in Oppenheimer Park, the safety of perception, um, or rather the perception of safety, uh, is right across Strathcona for business members. Uh, it's not just related uh, to park activity, but for so much to um, have gone on in the park, uh, for so long. I think that's just really uh, raising people's um, concern. Absolutely. Uh, are you frustrated at all that it's not even on the agenda for the park board tonight? 
Okay, so I, I don't see it as a special item on the agenda. I have it right in front of me. But that's not to say that uh, it won't be part of the chair's report or um, the general manager's report. Uh, that said, I think if you want to send a signal to the public, if you want to invite people to follow along, if you want to track the work that's happening, you you know, they could have made a decision to be more explicit about it. But I'm not privy to the decision and governance, uh, you know, practices and processes the Parks Board applies on a weekly basis. So I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. They may be going in camera to make some final decisions around the third party assessor and how they want to move forward. I think uh I know we're all really focused on this meeting tonight. I, I want to give them a little bit of room, and I think the proof will be in the pudding in the next 24 to 48 hours after the meeting when we get to see and hear what happens next. No, and, and that's fair, exactly, uh, for, for to do that. Uh, and I think, too, you mentioned the third-party assessor. Uh, that's something that even the NPA councillors or commissioners voted in favour of that motion because it had the word injunction in it, and it led the door to the door that perhaps they would go down the route of getting an injunction based on what this third party said or did. But since they announced that they were going to even get the third-party assessor, we haven't heard anything from them about that. Yeah, I, I know. I think that was actually the biggest message I had for um, the chair of the Parks Board, and it remains my strongest message for city manager and for city council, too. Um, there's an absence of communication and knowledge going forward to the public. I mean, even this issue of not seeing something explicit on the agenda, that, that feeds into it a little bit. What's going on? How are you talking about it? I know they're working on it. I know there's communications and working happening behind closed doors. Um but what happens is this is such a public issue. This is a public space. Uh, the public, the businesses themselves are being impacted. We need to hear more moving forward. So even, even when that third-party assessor is announced, the Strathcona BIA is going to have to stay on top of Parks Board and on City uh, to make sure that there's communications flowing out to the public. We just need to know what's going on. And that will begin to build trust up again, slowly but surely. And I think you made a very interesting point in that while we're focused on the camp that is in Oppenheimer Park and looking at what's happening in that park and has been happening for many, many months, it's not it's not just the camp on its own. Certainly, there are other issues in the area. You don't have to walk very far from Oppenheimer to see other people living on the street, tents in some other areas. So do you feel like... Uh, like not enough's being done in the area as a whole, and that this is simply this is this is making things even worse. It's a really difficult question to answer, and I'll, I'll say why. I think there's a lot of people working very hard across the community to do what they can, and collectively, it's still not enough. Uh, I think um, you know what's happening, particularly in and around Oppenheimer Park, is um, reflective of larger issues across our city. How we treat and work with our most marginalized uh, community members. Um, and citizens uh, reflects on all of us, um, and the businesses are part of that as well. And so, you know, one of my party messages and continues to be to parks, to city, to city manager's office, to all the services, to everyone working hard is keep the businesses looped in. How can we help? How can we support? People are running these businesses, not machines, families. They employ people. We all want to feel safe. Let's keep doing this, but doing it together. Let's keep us in the loop. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Theodora Lamb, thank you so much. Thanks. You'll have a great day. You too. Theodora Lamb is the executive director of the Strathcona Business Improvement Association. Extradition hearing that everybody has been focused on in BC Supreme Court in Vancouver has just taken a break for the lunch hour. And Aaron MacArthur, Global BC reporter, has been in court this morning and joins us for an update. Aaron, thanks so much. Hi, Joe. Hi. What did we learn or what happened in court today? 
Well, today, Mung's defense team laid out its case against the extradition request. So in extradition hearings, it actually goes opposite to how court cases are, are determined. The defense needs to prove that extradition isn't warranted. So Richard Peck, a high-profile lawyer on Mung's defense team, basically laid out their case. One, uh, the fraud that Mung's alleged to have committed doesn't amount to uh, the same crime that the U.S. authorities are claiming, and two, uh, the Iranian sanctions that Mung is alleged to have violated or forced HSBC Bank into violating wouldn't constitute a crime in Canada. Uh, there's some fine legal wrangling going on here, but that, that's the essence of, of what Mung's team is, is laying out. And there was much talk about that and this whole idea of double criminality and having to prove that what she's accused of, as you just said, was in fact or would be a crime in Canada. So it sounds like they're really focused on that so far. It certainly focused on that. There's a couple of hiccups in the defense's case, but so the allegations stem back to a lunch in Hong Kong between Meng Wanzhou and HSBC executives in Hong Kong, where, where Meng is alleged to have made improper statements about dealings that Huawei had with a company called Skycom in Iran. Now, that in and of itself is, is considered, or the U.S. alleges is considered fraud, but in Canada, the way we define fraud is different, and whether there's a risk associated to the bank or, or any loss associated to the bank, and those are the questions that will come up over the next uh, two days while defense makes its arguments. All right, and so defense talking for two days, but are we expecting this will continue on throughout the week? It's been scheduled for five days. There's been a, there, on Friday, there was a case management hearing where an extra day had to be added, but it was all, always scheduled for four days. And remember, this is just the double criminality part of the extradition hearing. Uh, there is a court date set in June that's uh, part of the civil trial. And then in the fall, there's a second part of the extradition hearing that will likely go ahead as well. Now, if this, if the judge decides that there is no merit for these extradition charges, then it, it can be tossed out now and that might be the end of it but I highly doubt that we'll be uh, we'll be saying this is the end of the Meng Wanzhou saga when this week's over. All right uh, Aaron we'll keep uh, looking for your reports and uh, your updates from that case. Thanks so much. All right. Aaron MacArthur is a Global BC reporter and again we will keep you uh, up to date as more information comes from that extradition hearing. Let's switch back now as I mentioned before the break. The third Monday in January often referred to as Blue Monday, unofficially the most depressing day of the year. So what is it that gets the third Monday in January this title? Miriam Judah joins me now and an adjunct professor at the SFU Department of Psychology. Hi, thanks for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thank you for having me. Uh, is this a real thing or is this a marketing ploy? Yeah, no, it's not a real thing. So uh, Blue Monday um, was put forward by a travel agency, I think, to promote uh, just people traveling more. <laughs> but there's nothing about today that makes it more depressing than tomorrow, for example. Um, there's a mathematical formula, actually, that was... Uh, that this is based on the Blue Monday, which um, has interesting variables such as uh, the weather and 
the debts that people have from spending money at, on Christmas Day and monthly salary and uh, time since Christmas and things like that, which might individually predict, uh, you know, our, our happiness. But uh, the formula in itself uh, makes no sense, mathematically speaking. It's like comparing apples to oranges. <laughs> All right, because I was, I was thinking about it and I, I kind of I had forgotten that it was Blue Monday. But even on my way in this morning, it was pitch dark. It was pouring rain. It was a pretty typical January day in Vancouver. So I, I was thinking, well, there's nothing really different about this day compared to a lot of other days. Would I have preferred it not be dark and rainy? Sure. Uh, but uh, didn't find myself overly gloomy be- because of That's- it. That's correct. Uh, what is true is that in the winter, we do have, uh, you know, a higher frequency of depression. And there's a specific form of depression that uh, it's called seasonal affective depression, so sad. And uh, that, um, that is related to the winter months. And it happens um, much more frequently in places that are further away from the equator, so where the days are short. Uh, so we do know that light is very important to our mood. And um, in the winter, we're just simply not getting enough light exposure. Uh, the days are shorter, so there's less opportunity for light exposure. But also, uh, we are indoors more because it is rainy and dark. Um, so we prefer to be indoors. But the consequence of that is that we are not getting enough light exposure. And light exposure is very important for for our mood. Hmm. And, and I suppose that's the, the one thing too, in that we can say that this idea of Blue Monday is is a made up thing. Uh, what's not made up is what you just said, that people might be feeling a bit of depression or they might be feeling sad. Maybe we're not getting as, as much exercise because we can't go outside as much or don't want to go outside as much. So what do you suggest? What should people do to try and combat that? Yeah, so I think what's important is that we try, it's important to try to still go outside a lot. Uh, so we recommend as uh, a sum of rule about two hours a day and especially during times where there's daylight. Uh, and the morning light seems to be particularly important so for, for our circadian rhythms, for our health, but also for our mood. So I recommend, you know, bike to work, walk to work, even on a rainy day, put on, you know, a, a fun raincoat and rain boots and uh, just seek outdoor light exposure. Don't make the mistake of staying indoors. Um, and it's very tempting, especially when you start to feel blue <laughs> and low in mood and low in energy that you, you have a tendency to, uh, to stay indoors. But you can really combat that by going outside and trying to be outside as much as possible, having lunch outside or going for a, a quick walk around lunchtime. But the morning light exposure is particularly important. Now, for many people, it's very hard to get that morning light exposure in the winter months because it is still dark in the morning. So one thing um, that I'd recommend is to use uh, light boxes. So there are these light boxes that you can purchase. They have about 10,000 lux in intensity. A good sad lamp has uh, 10,000 lux at a comfortable distance from the eyes, so about arm's length. And uh, to use that every morning for 10, 15 minutes. And uh, so it is very, uh, it's a very effective treatment for depression and seasonal affective disorder. But um, I, I believe everybody can benefit from it. Um, most of us are not getting enough light exposure in the winter months. Most of us don't have as much energy in the winter months. We're not as, uh, we're generally feeling more blue or more, more low in mood in the winter months as compared to the summer months. So that can really help um, 
just to get uh, to get a little bit more light exposure. Hmm, absolutely. We have one of those. Or one, an employee here has one at her desk, which I've seen oh, a few people going good. and checking it out. Um, is yeah. it all, what about sleep? Because on the flip side of that, with so much darkness, I think there's the opportunity for people to get more sleep because it's not like the summertime when you feel like maybe you want to be outside till 10 o'clock at night because it's still so beautiful. You can go to bed at eight or nine and not fear, about, fear of missing out on anything. Uh, do we get more sleep or, or no? Well, that's a very interesting, uh, interesting point you're raising here. So um, a, a relatively recent study compared um, people living um, uh, in Colorado. They uh, took them camping for a week, first in the summer months, afterwards in the winter months. And they noticed that under natural light exposure, so more light, bright light during the day and more darkness at night, people were sleeping much longer when they went camping than when they're in the city where we have artificial lighting in the evening. So seeking bright light during the day is very important. But what is also important is trying to dim our lights in the evening. There are seasonal changes in our circadian rhythms over the year. And, um, uh, and so, so we do see that uh, under natural conditions, under camping, for example, people release uh, melatonin for much longer. It was about four hours longer than when they're not camping. So it's a very interesting point uh, that you're raising here uh, about, uh, about also trying to dim the lights in the evening. Hmm, who knew winter camping could just be the thing to make us all a bit happier? <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't want to go camping in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, thank you for, uh, for bringing some alternative ideas to that. Or, but fear not, you don't have to go sleep in a tent. There are other things uh, you can yeah. do. <laughs> Exactly. So, so try to seek more outdoor light exposure every day and, uh, or cheat with a light box. Uh, early in the morning, within the first hour of awakening, your natural awakening, 15, 20 minutes is often enough. All right. Very interesting. We will leave it there. Miriam Judah, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Miriam Judah, adjunct professor at the SFU Department of Psychology. Thanks for being with us. Well, a lot of people have been talking, have been speculating, wondering if, in fact, Harry and Meghan are going to move to BC, at least part-time. One of the big questions, so if they did, what would that look like? Not only are the questions being asked about what Canadians might have to pay, would we have to pay for their security, but also what might they have to pay if they purchased a house here? What taxes might they be on the hook for? Well, Chris Sims is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation BC Director, and she joins me on the line now. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having us. Uh, have you been able to look at this or try and, and figure out, to, to, practically speaking, if they were to buy a house, so let's just say in Vancouver, and live right. there part-time, what kind of taxes would they face? That's a really great question, and it's something to be straight up. We don't know. Uh, something like this hasn't really happened before. We've, of course, seen abdication happen at a much more critical time in the royal family, and that was, of course, the king on the brink of the Second World War. But we've not seen a sixth in line to the crown person kind of sort of leave the royal family but retain the title of duke and then move part-time to canada so we're stacking our heads as well but if we can speculate if they were to to use a phrase if they were to move here to vancouver they would of course pay the taxes on their home when they purchase it and then they'd have to pay property taxes and then it's a great question say they spend more than 50% of the year leaving the home empty, 
they would probably be subject to the empty home tax if they don't rent it out. I can't imagine Harry and Megan signing up for rental renters. Uh, but there's also the speculation tax, same thing. If they don't spend six months plus a few days in their dwelling, in their residence, they'll then be hit with the speculation tax. And then the huge question we were just asking around the federal table at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is, what kind of income tax do you pay? If you're a British citizen, married to an American citizen, who's officially a duchess, then if you're working in earning income in Canada, what do you pay for income tax? And then also, what happens if they spend time in the United States? Does then, is Harry then her spouse technically? And does he need to wait that big waiting period if she's working and he's not? Like, all of these things are way up in the air. I can just imagine the paperwork. <laughs> well, and, and even thinking about it, so I was thinking of Meghan Markle. So she had a pretty successful acting career before she gave that up to join the royal family. So yes. even hypothetically, let's say she goes back to acting. So like you said, maybe she's filming in Vancouver, maybe she's filming in the States. But as an American citizen, from what I understand, you're always tied to the United yeah. States income tax system. So she's going to be paying taxes in the States no matter what. But then there's that question. Well, what if she's doing a movie in Vancouver? She's making the money in Vancouver. And while she's doing that, it's her residence. What does she pay in that scenario? <laughs> Exactly. And then what happens if she, what, what if it's two different film sites? As we know, it was different famous films that have been shot in Vancouver. Not all of it is done in Vancouver. Then you need to sit there and do the calculation and find out exactly where the physical work was actually being conducted while earning income. I would, they need a really good accountant. <laughs> they need a fabulous accountant. And what's really interesting is since they're, I mean, they're still obviously family, but they're not part of the official kind of corporation of the royal family anymore. So all of this stuff, they're going to have to contract this out. We were talking about it amongst ourselves, too, about the issue of security. A lot of people bring that up. And while we know in exceptional circumstances, the right people will do the right thing, when it comes to your day-to-day security, uh, we have rich and famous people who live here all the time. And so we think the best way to look about this is imagine they're a hockey player. Right. And they're from overseas and they've got millions of dollars and they're earning an income here. They're probably going to have to take a page out of that book. And quite often they'll have international marriages. So they're going to have to maybe phone Sidney Crosby and ask him for some pointers. (laughs) Do you think does it make a difference that so because I think that's where things are a little muddy as well in that they've left. They're no longer officially your royal highness. But they yeah. are a part of this royal family, or they're at least at least Prince Harry is a, is a descendant of this royal family that yes. is still connected to Canada. So is he entitled to, I suppose the question is, to have security provided to him when he's in Canada? Great question. Uh, we think the day-to-day, run-of-the-mill, they should be treated like other rich and famous people who are choosing to come live here. And that means hiring their own security. And we're sure that we'll cover that. But in exceptional circumstances, I mean, of course, it's one of those things that the right people will do the right things. I'm curious mostly about the housing, too. Because if you start getting into the issue of if they buy a house here or not, would they be called speculators or not? Would they be dinged with the empty home tax or not? Um, who counts as living there? If they have staff, does that mean that they kind of function as a placeholder of sorts, or to use that term, and it isn't qualifying as being empty? All of these things are swirling around, but there's a way maybe he could get around that. If they would just live at Government House in Victoria, that is owned by Her Majesty the Queen. Mm. 
Mm. The lieutenant governor's there, sure, but it's 36 acres. I'm sure she could share the laundry days, right? <laughs> she, they, and his, his grandma owns it. It could go stay at grandma's house. Right. And Although so that doesn't then he wouldn't he could get around all these other sticky tax issues. But that doesn't then that kind of flies in the whole face of they want financial independence and they want right. to live their own lives as as the common people. See, that's a great question. So does that then incur an expense? If you're living in a home that is already owned by Her Majesty the Queen, is that then incurring expense technically to the public dime? That's a great question. Um, If they live, say, on Crown land, like a huge swath of Canada is still owned by the Crown. It's literally why it's called the Crown. It's technically Her Majesty the Queen's property. And what happens? So this is just absolutely fascinating from both a a tax and a governance perspective. But if you're just looking at it straight up, the way I would look at it is take a page from a hockey player. So quite often they'll be internationals, they'll have a lot of dough, they often have international marriages. They work and earn income in different countries at different times, depending on who they're playing for. They're probably going to have to take some notes there and work their way through. Do you think, do they have security? Oh, quite often hockey players will have security, for sure. Um, I've interviewed very wealthy, famous hockey players, and it's funny, they have a security dude kind of following them around. They're really tough on the ice, but they're worth so much money, right? You have to imagine... God forbid, uh, they can be a target sometimes. And if you're worth that amount of money and you're that famous person, quite often they will hire private security for sure. So I'm taking from this conversation then that they have to either get an Airstream and go park it on some crown land and call it a day, or they need to get a really good accountant who can walk them through all of the taxes because they'll also have the so-called, if it's in Vancouver, they would have the so-called school tax on any property over more than 3 million, which I'm guessing their home would be. Or right. they, yeah, they need to, to figure out, so maybe they leave Archie in the house more than six months of the year as part of the family with the nanny, and then they get around it that way. <laughs> it keeps it warm, right? <laughs> and then they get around the taxes. And this just really highlights, you can use this as an example of the crazy level of taxation that happens in Vancouver. So you're right. Say it's a very nice house, it's over $3 million or whatever, get school tax. Then you've got the crazy property taxes, which are just jacked up in Vancouver again. Then you've got speculation tax, empty homes tax, and then provincial taxes, plus income tax. And this is just sorry to throw an extra spanner into the works. He's, of course, a former member of the British Armed Forces. So is he getting a pension yet as a veteran officially from British Armed Forces? How does that transfer over here to Canada? Does he need to deal with Veterans Affairs Canada now? Like, these are all major paperwork questions. (laughs) They absolutely are. Now, you had an event, did you not, earlier today, welcoming uh, them to Canada. Should they they uh, decide to come here? Yes. So we wanted to do two things. One, we really need to remind Prime Minister Justin Trudeau not to open the taxpayer purse strings. We're hearing all the messages from Harry and Meghan. They want to be financially independent. That's awesome. Unfortunately, the Prime Minister has a habit of blowing money, and so we want to make sure that the Prime Minister knows uh, not to spend Canadian tax dollars on this. So we've got a petition. More than 50,000 people have signed it already in just a few days, which is amazing. But we also wanted to be kind. And so we gathered together a bunch of donations for a local women's shelter in their name, and we're going to be donating it from the CTF on behalf of the Duke and Duchess. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Yeah, it's, um, Canadians are really welcome. And that's, 
that's the message we're hearing from people. They say, this is awesome. We love this couple. They're really nice. Um, no extra dollars. Thank you so much. But feel free to give to charity. So that's what we're trying to do. All right. I know I keep hearing people say, too, oh, but you're not factoring in the increase in tourism if they come here, which I think is a bit of a stretch. Do we really think that people are going to start coming here what, and going on the Meghan and, the Meghan and Harry walking tour or driving tour? Like Go go to where they had breakfast. Go to where their exactly. house is. Probably that's not. not that's what I asked, too. I said, well, that's all fine and dandy, but what are you going to do? Like, contain them in a glass cage <laughs> and then have people come by and, like, buy foamy hands? No. So how could it possibly increase tourism? That's kind of funny. All right. Well, still a lot of questions, but I think you're right on getting a good accountant should they decide Darn to call, <laughs> call Vancouver home. Chris, great to chat with you. Thanks so much. Likewise. Take care. That is Chris Sims. She is the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation.